Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I am Ben Duncan, and this is a place where prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana share their stories. In today's episode, I am delighted to be joined by Mitesh Mystery, a Salesforce CTA and the CTO for VRP Consulting. Mitesh has worked with Salesforce for around 14 years and has worked for both large and small Salesforce partners, as well as directly with Salesforce for around three years. He shares some insight into the different types of Salesforce architect roles that he has held, how working for Salesforce compares to working for a partner, and why it's so important that a project has the right architect. Mitesh talks about the CTA credential, how it is viewed in the market, and what it has meant for him personally. He explains what he currently does as a CTO, and what he looks for in others who may be eager to progress to architect, and also why he chose to join VRP recently. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. Mitesh, thank you for joining. Yeah, thank you, Ben, for having me on your podcast and show. Yeah, no, my pleasure, my pleasure. We, we've communicated over the years on LinkedIn and, um, you know, you're in my LinkedIn feed regularly, so I'm really excited to kind of explore your background and your journey through the Salesforce ecosystem. And I understand also now you're, you're living in Thailand, so we'll touch on that as well. Let's, uh, let's look back though, early days and your early career. So you've been in consulting for quite a long period of time, but what, what did you do initially and what then attracted you into the consulting world? Okay, cool. So, I mean, I started my career in the graduate program at Deloitte. So at that point, um, I think when I had my choice to join Deloitte, it was kind of largely for one main reason, the fact that you can get to work across multiple projects, across multiple industries, learn different things as a kind of new startup, because the last thing I wanted was to be in a role, which is like just, you know, one fixed role. It's your day-to-day task and it's all you're going to do for like two, three years. I think the fact that you can be in a project for like a couple of months or maybe longer, let's say a year's engagement, and you know it's coming to an end. And you know there's something different that's going to come after that, which you can learn new things from, either about an industry, about a customer's different challenges, maybe a new technology. I like the fact that consulting lets you do that. So that's really what brought me into the consulting fold, I would say. So and what was your, obviously you're a grad, right? So you were coming in to learn the ropes and to find your niche, I guess. But what did you go in as on projects? Like what kind of projects were you exposed to and what was your role? Okay, so my first project I worked on was a large media client in London. They did media licensing for kind of radio stations, performers, and basically they were responsible for collecting money when any, let's say, musician's track was played, be that radio, television, and other avenues as well. It was a large program of work, and I was brought in at that point as a Java developer because those are the skills that I had coming out of university, the software engineering degree. So I did three months of kind of helping write unit tests at that time using a tool called Selenium. And I think after three months, I got a bit bored. I thought, hey, guys, you know what? I, I can actually talk as well. I'm not just somebody who sits there and codes. So that got a little bit frustrating. So I started kind of voicing my concerns, saying I need to have a little change of scene over here. So there was Salesforce, which was happening on that uh, client account as well. And at that point, I didn't know what Salesforce was. And I was told that, okay, we've got this other stuff going on, force.com. Maybe you want to try that out. Okay. And I was like, okay, fine. I don't know what this is, but we'll give it a go. So yeah, I got moved to the Salesforce team at that point, delivering a community implementation to allow for these guys to like log where their tracks have been played and, and have these rights holdings associated correctly to musicians. 
And that was my introduction to Salesforce. So I came in pretty much um, at that point. I didn't know Salesforce. So I was sitting there with my laptop and having the kind of the, the books in front of you as like guides telling you how to implement Salesforce. But that's how it began. I'm, if I look back now, I'm just really pleased that that's the route I took because, you know, 12, 14 years now. So 14 years in, yeah, I'm really happy that that's the direction I was given at that time. I didn't know I was going to end up here, but um, yeah, it's worked out really well. Yeah, I think now we're seeing people make intentional decisions to become Salesforce professionals. But back then, no one seemed to be intentionally doing it. It was just kind of you fell into this space and, and off you went. It was kind of a risk at the time because you don't want to pigeonhole yourself to, to the technology that you may not be very sure about or you haven't heard too much about you know, prior to that. I think now the situation is completely different where I'm hearing even universities are being told about Salesforce. We've got companies who are sending people actively to recruits from universities to get them into like Salesforce specific roles. Mm -hmm. I've even heard of certain universities starting to teach small bits of Salesforce, but introduce people to what CRM is, what Salesforce is and how it can be a career choice. So that's totally different to what it was like, like 14, 15 years ago. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And just on that point, you said you were a Java developer, but you kind of put your hand up and said, look, I can do more than just code. Because a lot of people early in their career, three months in a grad scheme, maybe wouldn't have the confidence to do that. You know, they might just do what they're they're told and, and, you know, be coding because that's what they've been hired to do on that project. What gave you that confidence, you think, like to say, you know, I'm I'm more capable than just heads down coding. I've, I've got more in my skill set than that. Okay, so where this came from is from university. So the roles that I used to take on, I wouldn't be there just writing code for like our computing assignments. Obviously, we had assignments where we had to do the coding side, but I would take part in like presentations. I would take part in like documentation that we had to write. So I knew my skill set was beyond just kind of writing code. I knew that I can talk. And if I have to be in front of a customer, I knew that I can develop skills in doing that role properly. So when you start to kind of sit there for three months and you're not exposed to that. It starts to get a bit frustrating. And you at least want to know that you can be put in a role in the future, even if it's just like, let's say, I don't know, like a workshop or a design session, whatever, where you can be somebody who can then talk and make a design decision and not just be told, here's your ticket, go and work on it. Mm-hmm. So I, if that had lasted for two years, I wouldn't have lasted, put it that way. So um, I think that worked for me well, changing teams. I was working with a really good colleague. He's become a good friend of mine. He kind of gave me a chance to do these kind of roles. And then after my two years at Deloitte, I shifted to a company called Acumen Solutions. And that's when my growth, I think, really happened because I gained some good technical grounding in my two years. But Acumen, smaller company, you kind of have to do everything. You can't just be like, I just develop and that's it. No, you need to be the customer facing person. You need to build reports and dashboards. You need to be the person who's kind of like working out what the requirements are, holding design sessions yourself, because it's a small team. So you can't just say, I need some support. You kind of need to go in and do it yourself. So that's where I grew in confidence in terms of, yeah, I know the platform. And yes, I can advise a customer on how to use it too. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I, I put a post on LinkedIn this week asking about like, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given as a Salesforce professional for your career? And someone messaged me directly rather than commenting on LinkedIn, but they said, okay. um, never say no, like never say that's not my job. Yeah. Because they said, if, if it means that you need to write test classes, then you write test classes. Or, mm. you know, if, if it means jumping in to do some support, like never just be that person that says that's beneath me, like that's not my job. Mm. And it's interesting you say that because like you said, that really kind of pushed you to the next level by just taking on the different challenges. Exactly. And if I look back at what I used to do initially, like as more kind of hands-on development work, that sets the grounding really well for the future because I respect those people who've come through that background where they are estimating, let's say today, on pre-sales work and, and becoming architects, but they've actually gone through the hard graft of actually writing Salesforce code, 
understanding Apex, building workflows and flows and processes, et cetera, in the platform. So when they estimate work, there's a bit of trust behind it because you're like, yeah, you know what? You've done it yourself. Mm-hmm. You kind of know what the number should be and what complexities are involved in doing it. So you also have a bit more empathy for the developers who are going to be working on that piece of work as well. That's the mentality thing I've taken. Have it done it hands on? You kind of like, you know what? I'll I'll make sure that my estimates cover the time and cover the effort required for somebody else to do it. Yeah, and that's helped me a lot when doing scoping and pre-sales. Yeah, for sure, for sure, that makes sense. And just obviously, you, you left Deloitte to go to Acumen, but back then, fourteen years ago, how was Salesforce perceived by the bigger consulting firms? Because obviously, everyone does it now, right? It's um, you know, everyone is either doing Salesforce or trying to do Salesforce implementations as a consulting firm. But yeah. but when you made that switch, was it actually like a a big division, or, or was it a big revenue generator for Deloitte back then? I I don't think so. So it was in, the practice itself was in its infancy. At that point in time, I don't believe there were like aggressive scaling plans to be like, fine, you know, we want to make this, we want to scale our team quickly from 50 to 100 today. Like you see a lot of partners come on board now, some of which I've worked for recently, where there's active plans in place to make sure they're doubling team size in a year. Mm-hmm. So those kind of plans, those trajectories, they were not there 14 years ago. It's kind of like, let's take what work we get, see how we go. And based on revenue coming in, more projects kind of, in the Salesforce domain, we can then start to scale up a team. So it was more patient, I would say, back then compared to now. But obviously, that's a different story for the consultancies who are purely doing Salesforce. Yeah. For them, you obviously have plans. And a lot of time, it wasn't about scaling, but it's more about getting more customers, getting more logos, um, getting more projects. And on the back of that, you then scale up your team accordingly. So that's that's kind of how things were back then. And obviously, you mentioned Acumen really launched you to the next level, and and you have progressed. Like in fourteen years, you've you know gone from being a grad in that team to now you've operated like as an enterprise architect on programs of work. We'll touch on what that role means, but what would you say like has been pivotal in your success in terms of some of the progress? Obviously, working in in a, a smaller business where you get to play lots of roles, but in terms of getting to that kind of enterprise architecture level, what has helped you get there? Okay, so I think it's two things. So firstly, it's the desire to be vocal, the desire to be involved in design work and not just implementation work. So being put in scenarios where your MD asks you like, hey, I need your help to give me an estimate for this for this piece of work. And instead of just giving a number, I would then also help writing the pre-sales proposal too. So I knew I had the skills to do it. I knew like, fine, if someone tells me, fine, you know what, here's a client requirement, here's um, the kind of work we're going for. Can you help write this proposal document? So I'd make a good stab at it. And even sections which may not be assigned to me, I'd try and do as well, just so I can kind of practice doing it and, and seeing how it turns out. And it's, it, it always turned out okay. So I think taking on more and more of that kind of next step role in the work I was doing, it made sure that I was moving towards that architecture direction as a whole. And what I found is over the course of time, I was given more work, which is like end-to-end, where you're not just given a, a PM's not just giving you a ticket, you actually are doing the design part of it as well, ratifying it internally and with the customer, moving on to building it, and then having a demo session which you were running at the end of that. So by doing multitude of roles in what I was doing, it made sure that I was moving in that direction where I can kind of be like a jack of all trades, but move towards the architecture domain mm-hmm. in that way. And then obviously what helped, there was a couple of moves I did, which I think pushed me in that direction too. So go, going from Acumen to Cloud Sherpas, I was brought in as a kind of technical architect at Cloud Sherpas at the time. So my role involved part coding, but also part looking after a couple of guys who are building stuff. And for them, I had to then architect it for them, say, this is the design I want you guys to build and go off and do it. And then from there on in, I would say that probably the tipping point where most of my development work probably went away and I moved more towards architecture 
was when I joined Salesforce. So I joined them as a technical architect, left them as a senior program architect. That role or set of roles at Salesforce, that was purely architecture focused. So I wasn't writing anything. I was heavily involved in designing and kind of leading teams at the same time, implementing solutions. So that was the, I'd say that would be the tipping point Mm -hmm. as to when my role moved more towards technical and enterprise architecture as well. And how would you differentiate those two roles? So I think a lot of people probably have never worked. A lot of people in the Salesforce ecosystem wouldn't necessarily have worked with an enterprise architect before. Like it might be a title that they see in a customer, mm. but they wouldn't necessarily align that to a Salesforce role. So how, how would you differentiate like an enterprise architect from a technical architect in the Salesforce realm? So the way I look at it is that a technical architect is kind of given a platform to work with, given the technology to work on, and, he's, and you're kind of working at how to design a solution based on that for a customer challenge. You might be given smaller segments of that to work with. So let's say a customer wants A, B, and C, and you're designing that A, B, and C within a certain technology stack. When you're an enterprise architect, you're deciding what that technology stack is. So you are somebody who's empowered to say if Salesforce is right or not. You're empowered to say whether they need Heroku, do they need some other part of Salesforce, or even some other technology like AWS we brought in or not. That's the role as an enterprise architect. And not just that, you have to start to look at a company's rollouts and program vision too. So you need to say, fine, if you're going to be bringing in, let's say AWS to do this part of your organization, if you're going to be bringing in Salesforce to do these elements over here, in what order should they be brought in? What should your timelines look like? What should your roadmap be? What kind of governance structures do we need to have in place? This is the kind of stuff which enterprise architects do. And I think I was exposed to that a lot more um, at Salesforce as part of my career. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I've had some people recently that not through myself, but they were interviewing with Salesforce for program architect roles. Mm. And I spoke to them afterwards to to see how they got on. And they were talking about like they were being asked questions way outside of the Salesforce realm. And they they didn't expect that because they were like, well, this is a Salesforce role, right? And it's, well, no, it's a program architect role. So you're looking at, you know, how does a customer go through a digital transformation with Salesforce as an element, I guess? Yeah. So you're shaping the vision for the company ultimately, and you're, you're that bridge between a company's long-term vision and how technology can support that. So it's your job to make sure that you've got enough learnings and knowledge and experience to be able to decide, right, it's the stack that you need mm-hmm. in the sequence. You'll have to have this kind of change management in your company. Departments are going to be impacted. So as an enterprise architect, you need to kind of have your head around all that mm-hmm. in terms of the work you do. And you, over the years, I'm sure you've worked with many developers, I'm sure um, many good, many not so great, but lots of them will have had aspirations to get to that kind of technical architect level and maybe beyond. So what do you look for in like someone that's early in their development career or even you know progressing through their development career and, and you look at them and say, right, this person has the potential to be an architect, like not necessarily an architect now, but what kind of traits do they show or skills do they, they typically have? Okay, so that's a good question. Um, personally, I look for I look for two things. So, number one is people who have an affiliation with the technology, so they understand the platform well, not just from a line of code perspective, but also from an ability to decide what element of Salesforce, let's say, to use to solve a certain problem. So, I you need somebody who can say, right, you know what, this requirement, this should be flow. This requirement, this looks like Apex to me. So, you need to be able to decide that. And you can only decide it if you've done enough flows. And if you're written enough Apex to know what these things actually are used for and to do. Mm-hmm. And the second part of this is also confidence. So people who want to be vocal, who speak well, and who want to be in front of customers, they want to present, they grow their confidence. I think those kind of traits is what you require then to move into an architecture role where you're happy to be front facing, you're happy to kind of lead a team, you're happy to kind of be 
the person who's looking after an engagement. Because what I, what I found in my time is, irrespective of whatever company I've worked for, I think the TAs are the most important person in the team. And I've said this on LinkedIn a few times. I really feel that the binding loop between the project, the customer, what they want to do, they really hold that account together. And if you've got a bad TA on an account, you can derail the whole project completely. So I, I think that's one of the most important roles in a team. It's funny because I've got a podcast coming up in a couple of weeks with a new CTA who recently passed and their background actually, they were technical back in the Mm -hmm. day, but then they became more of like a program manager. And their reason for wanting to become a technical architect was because the technical architect was like the star of the show. Okay, yeah. And um, when they would go to meet with the customer, with the technical architect, the, the customers really wanted to speak to the technical architect. They weren't so bothered what the program manager was saying. Yeah. So that, that made him want to, well, maybe maybe I should go down that route. So it's funny you say that the star of the show, like the person that, that is pivotal to a program of work is the TA. Put it, put it this way. You, if, just imagine pre-sales for a lot of the consulting partners. A salesperson cannot estimate. A salesperson cannot decide what technologies to use. They can't tell the client it's, it's two million program of work without somebody behind that knowing, okay, fine, they're going to need this, this, and this. This takes X amount of time to build. So this is how it gets pieced together. So I mean, what I'm saying might come across as arrogant, but this is just what I've seen where without a TA being there, you physically cannot sell stuff. You need somebody there who knows their stuff, can put a proposal together and can push it out the door properly for a customer. So I think that technical background, whether it's somebody in the team or yourself as an individual, is really important to have. So uh, this is a bit of a curveball question then, because some partners don't have TAs, right? And um, mm. is that why you think there's sometimes, a, I don't know, how do I word it, like a bit of a um, a lag in some estimations and things like that, or, you know, expectations not being met when something's delivered just because they didn't have the right person doing the estimation and the, the solutioning? I think it can happen. So if, if you've had a project scoped and you haven't had somebody who's done at least elements of that once before to be able to turn around and say, yeah, you know what, this is what it's going to look like. Uh, who's been in the trenches even to say, right, you know what, you're going to need this number of weeks of UAT. Typically, we see 50% defects come back out. You need an extra two weeks to add it onto your timeline to make sure those get solved. You need to have done that once before, be it a TA or a PM, whoever it is, but you just need to have been in those trenches once to know, okay, this is what typically a project's going to look like. These are things that are going to go wrong. We're going to have this amount of problems to solve at the end anyway. So let's just factor in that time yep. um, and make sure that things get estimated properly and scored properly for a customer. So that's having done that a few times really, really helps get things right. Makes sense. Now, you, you've been a CTA for several years now. Have you noticed any change in perception to how the CTA is now kind of seen in the market, you know, by customers? Because, you know, maybe customers weren't so aware in the past of what a CTA is? And where do you feel like once someone is a CTA, where do they add the most value in the ecosystem? Okay, so I think from a customer's perspective, they need to be versed in Salesforce to a certain extent for them to know what a CTA actually is. So I don't think publicly, it's very clear to customers what a CTA is, what they've sacrificed and done to reach the top of that pyramid. Mm-hmm. That's just my gut feeling that from what I've seen. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, I would have said something different. If I'd gone into accounts and you hear customers say, oh, wow, you have a CTA, yeah, bring them in. Yeah. I've not come across that too often. I think they maybe do not fully know like what it means to kind of to get to that point. Obviously, we when I introduce myself, I say, hey, you know, so I've done this. Um, I'm part of like the 350 or 400 people globally who've got this qualification and so on. So they, they get some introduction to it, but I don't think they always know what it is unless you introduce it to them. Sure. And what about then in the partner world? Um, have you seen any change in how a CTA is kind of received or, or seen over the years? Okay, so in, in the partner ecosystem, it's, it's big. It's big. I mean, um, a lot of partners globally, 
depending on the region that you're in and so on. They may only have, even the largest GSIs may only have one CTA locally in a certain country. So when I, when I joined IBM, for example, I was the only CTA there in the UK. You, you are treated like gold dust, actually. I cannot deny that. They treat you well when you have that CTA credential um, against your name. And even from a career perspective, from a compensation perspective, from the kind of opportunities you get, being a CTA, for me personally, I would say genuinely has helped me in, in kind of elevating my career post Salesforce. And this was, you know, if I was to be honest about it, it's probably one of my reasons why I moved on from Salesforce. I love the company, one of the best roles I've had working at Salesforce. Great people, great management, you know, very happy there. But I felt I could give more. And going back to the partner ecosystem, working for a smaller company, VRP Consulting, on a very different kind of engagement, which was helping them grow and helping them transform. It's nice to, to think that, fine, even such a small partner, only a certain volume, has got a CTA in their books, helping them architect and sell. That really helps them. Um, and you feel, you feel that kind of warmth given to you as well from the management of these smaller places, like, oh, you're a CTA, okay, come. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I can only imagine how, how many uh, LinkedIn emails and things you get as a CTA from recruiters and just must be pretty insane. It's interesting now because you say that it's, it's died down. Back in 2018, you get hounded almost like three times a week. Recruiters for contracting roles, for permanent roles. Yeah, a lot of content like that. And I think recently, I've not really seen too much. Yeah, Maybe it's because of the region I'm in, but I've not been harassed too much these days now. So it seems to be okay. I wonder if it's because like recruiters are, are more established now. So like a lot of the recruiters in the market have been doing Salesforce for quite some time. So they know you, right? So they, they probably this is true. They probably know what it would take for you to be interested or they would only reach out if it was a really standout role rather than just pestering you over every job they get. This is really true. And I think the guys that I kind of work with from a recruitment point of view, that's true. I think they kind of know me well enough now that if I am looking, then I'll contact them first yeah. and tell them, hey, can you can you guys help me here? I'm either debating what next or thinking about what next to do yeah that works well for me it saves them wasting time you know hunting for stuff it's better that they only try and find stuff and i've told them that they find i think i'm having a cheap eat so let's have a look around yeah definitely and and it's interesting the point you made around why you left salesforce because we don't often see many people leaving salesforce i think you know that it's a good company to work for you get looked after good compensation shares all of this jazz but recently we have seen a few people leave and from what i understand the program architect role is an amazing role like you said you learn a lot you get exposure to lots of different things but it can also be a little bit limiting in terms of the impact you can actually make from a, a hands-on perspective with a customer right because you don't really do much hands-on work unless you're in the professional services team but in the advisory space you're not touching salesforce right for a customer yeah so it's that's interesting i i actually kind of enjoyed the fact I wasn't involved in any kind of projects let's say actively so my last role at salesforce was working as a senior program architect for a large company at that point and my role was working with an implementation partner, but advising them on how to use Experience Cloud. It's a completely different role because what you're doing is you're kind of building out POCs. You're investigating areas of the platform to make sure that you know how it works before you advise the partner on, on how to do things. But you don't have any delivery news to your neck. You've got no PM telling you that this is your deadline. You've got nobody telling you that, fine, in two weeks' time, that story needs to be completed. So make it happen or your design needs to be finished by then. You're waiting on somebody else producing it. You review it, give your feedback and move on. And I think I did enjoy that role where you're kind of seen as a trusted advisor. But it was a cool role to have. And I think for the people who go into Salesforce after doing years of architecture at GSI, for example, or a partner or a small, medium partner, whatever, they will actually enjoy the time at Salesforce purely because of that. Because it, when you do those roles, it feels like you've taken a step up. Yeah. 
in, you're not in the trenches anymore. You're kind of out of the trenches. You're the person giving advice as to how, how to do things. So that's definitely a good growth role, I think, for people who are, who are architects. And that might explain why you do see a lot of influx of people moving across to Salesforce after being in the partner ecosystem. Oh, 100%. And, and like I said, it's difficult. It's, it's hard to get people to leave. So every time a technical architect or solution architect, program architect joins Salesforce, it's like, yeah. as a recruiter, selfishly, I'm like, yeah, it's great. Like, I'm really happy for you. But that's like one person gone out of talent pool because it's really difficult to get people back out of Salesforce. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of uh, bittersweet. I think a lot depends on the, their career ambitions too. Like, what is it that you want to do? I mean, at the time I was leaving Salesforce, one thing that I had in my head, I still have in my head, I'd love to do it someday, is to set up my own shop, whether that's as a partner or whether that's building some application. I actually do do something kind of on the side, which I'm not sure if you're aware of, but I run I run a CCA Academy. So I privately coach a couple of individuals as part of my business that I run. So that's cool. That gives me that kind of feeling of, hey, I'm doing something entrepreneurial outside of just your typical kind of day-to-day work in the ecosystem. And I think yeah. leaving Salesforce gave me a platform where I think I could do that mm-hmm. and have an open door to doing so. And then at the same time, you know, if, if you wanted to set up your own thing in the future, then that kind of, it's still there. And this is probably the reason why I moved on from Salesforce. Yeah. And the relationships you, you gain from being at Salesforce, like a, you know, very useful if you go down either of those paths in the future. It's been really useful here surprisingly enough so um, when i was when i was leaving Salesforce, i was toying with the idea of being transferred across to Salesforce singapore i got to know a couple of people famous guys in the ecosystem actually but yeah a couple of people who work out of the singapore office here and that's been useful now because i came here and i kind of contacted them saying hey you know we're a new partner we're starting up in this region if you guys have stuff you want to go with us on or want to work with us then let, let's have a chat and those conversations have actually led to opportunities so i'm really grateful that i did form those bridges back then which have been fruitful for us now definitely and talking about your your current business so vrp and, and you're in the cto role and that it's an interesting one because we in australia i haven't seen that role used often in the partner world it's kind of becoming more more common now but over the last couple of years it hasn't been big in australia and new zealand whereas i know in europe there's lots of cto roles within partner organizations like some of the big consulting firms will have a cto for the salesforce practice so what what does a cto do in the salesforce world as a partner Okay, so I can speak from my experience here and what I've, I, I've kind of said to myself I'll do as part of this role. So I see it as twofold. Firstly, you need to develop a strong team. That involves mentoring individuals, upskilling individuals. And like you said, if I have to then highlight a couple of people who can become architects in the future and help them along that growth journey. So that's part one of my role. Part two is I run our internal CT Academy here at VRP. So my job is to make sure that we get more people who are ambitious and want to go through that journey through the door. So I, I run that over here. And then thirdly is helping sign more customers and get new deals through the door. So basically helping out in pre-sales, making sure the estimates are correct, making sure the scoping is correct, we recommend the right technology and solutions. And then for the larger accounts, being kind of the enterprise architect for them as well. So providing delivery governance, delivery advice, similar to the program architect role. So I'm not kind of hands-on building anything, but I'm making sure that the team are making the right decisions mm-hmm. and they're doing things in the right way. And there may be some elements which people are not sure of, so I help them out in the design of those things as well. So it's basically client delivery, pre-sales and team building and mentoring. So that those whole things combined is what my role is. And you could have pretty much taken your pick from any partner in the world, right? So um, you could have gone anywhere and, and pretty much done anything. So what was it about the opportunity at VRP that, that appealed? Okay, so two things, just say it candidly and honestly. Number one is remote working. 
So I've got a young child. He's 19 months old now. And the fact that I can be with him at home pretty much all the day, see his development, see his growth. I, I wouldn't have got that with a bigger partner. I think with most of the bigger places, you would be expected to be in an office maybe two, three days a week, you know, if, if that much. Here at VRP is different. We're, we're all remote. So even our team, they're based in Philippines, but I'm not there. Um, our MD, he lives one mile down the road from me. So kind of easier in Thailand too. So that arrangement, I think for me with the family that I have just worked amazingly well. I thought this is like a win-win in, in all regards. So that was why. And I think the second, that's the personal side. The second side is from a career point of view. I like being at the forefront of what I do. And I like being given roles where I can go beyond just being an architect. So at a, what I found at larger GSIs is you are not in contact with the Salesforce AEs. You're just not put in that role. You're not the final guy who's giving budgetary sign off on something to say, yeah, this is like a 1.5 million deal. You're just not given that task to do. And like here is completely opposite where you are pretty much able to act as an entrepreneur. You're able to then scope a deal. If you want to offer a little discount within reason, then, you know, you can kind of suggest that to your MD and say, hey, just knock one or two off here and just get this through the door. I can do that. I'm empowered to do that. I'm empowered to run this the way I want. I'm empowered to work with the people that I work with the way I want. There's no red tape. There's no like documents that's, that's around. Okay, you must follow this process and how you do things. You can run it how you want to run it. And I think that ability to be like an entrepreneur, I just love that about being here. Yeah, nice. And how, how are you finding that remote model? Because you, like you said, you're in Thailand now. You, you've got customers dotted around your customer base isn't necessarily in Thailand right so a lot of what you're doing will be zoom and um, over video calls and and even like having a baby in the house like I, I'm in the same boat so I've got a nine-month-old daughter and it's crazy right yeah. it's like uh, my daughter is literally in the house the whole day and I'm working from home full-time and it's definitely like you have to find the right balance yeah. right because I, I if I could I would just spend all day just chilling with her and, and playing with her but yeah. then I wouldn't get any work done so it's, it is an interesting balance right it's it's difficult to manage yeah that's true so thankfully over here we have a we have a kind of nanny that we've got on board in, in Thailand so that's been really helpful it means I can kind of focus and, and get a few things done obviously what I've learned is when you have children your nine to six is not nine to six it's just not going to be so you'll get some things done which may have some deadlines assigned in the working day and then in the late evening when there's a bit of quiet patch or early morning is when you start to do some other work as well just to make sure you kind of fulfilled your eight-hour commitment that you said you're going to do and that's how I've managed it for the last two years it would, would not be possible otherwise so so yeah and we're seeing now random like side track is that some companies obviously that have been following remote model are now asking their staff to come back into the office and to me it's just absurd yeah. Like even um, I've got a, a contractor based in one state and they've been working for a, a company in another state. And now that the state in the other, the company are, are bringing back some of their employees, they're not going to, or they're, they're talking about not extending this person's contract because they're not in the same state. Oh, wow. And it's like, but they've been working for you for a year and a half and, and delivering. Like, why does it matter in this day and age? Exactly. And, and the fact that we've all gone through COVID and it's been two years working from home and that if businesses didn't stop salesforce delivery didn't stop it carried on yeah i'll give you an example so it's, i think i can definitely publicly mention this but at, at ibm we did the whole rollout for the republic of ireland covid19 vaccines from home we weren't we nobody was flown to ireland to get this stuff on the road it was done purely from home yeah so it shows that even transformational programs at that scale, at that volume, at that importance can be delivered from home. You do not need to be on site anymore. And I stand by that too. It's good to be on site to meet the customer. It's good to be on site to lead your design sessions, to form a relationship and them to know you, you to know them and build the trust. I think once the trust is there, you can do the rest from home because most of the time your teams are not there anyways. The developers are going to be in some other country. So if you're just going into some office, 
to be on the phone to teams which are across the world. You can do that from home. What are you going to the office for? So will you have to travel? Travel for pre-sales, yes. Travel for like, I think for some certain workshops and design sessions, especially for larger customers, yes, that travel will be there. But beyond that, no, the rest can be done from home. So, yeah. And I mean, for for you, like you said, that was a key aspect of, of deciding roles. So like you wouldn't have taken the role had that not been the case, right? I, I wouldn't. I think I don't think I would have. And even if I just take a kind of step back, then when I joined Salesforce, same model, Salesforce did not make people work in the office. They did not make people work on client site. Pretty much we used to go there for important stuff. We used to travel in to do the kind of workshops, the main sessions, maybe uh, the odd show and tell here and there we travel in. But beyond that, we were not forced to kind of go to client site and be working out of there. A lot of that was also down to the PM. So if, the, if you found that the program manager or project manager is somebody who is an advocate for that model, they'll make sure the team then follows that as well. And they're not kind of forced to go in. But if you have a PM who is one of those person that might say, nah, I need you guys here three days, we need to see you all working and so on, then it's a different ballgame. So it, a lot depends on the individual too not just the customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And and before we go, anyone listening to this, what do you want VRP to be known for? Like what, where, where do you kind of sit in the, the ecosystem? Where are you going to affect the most um, outcomes for customers? So VRP, we're like a, a really cool boutique Salesforce consulting partner. Obviously with myself being there, we're a CTA-led technology practice. We've done a lot of implementations over the last 20 years in the Salesforce domain across kind of North America, EMEA, and across different technologies as well. So we've done projects involving field service, Lightning, CPQ, Tableau, CRM, Salesforce core platform, which is like the bread and butter of what we do. And I think um, if a company wants genuine people to come on board who are willing to work hard, who are not giving you nonsense estimates in how we score proposals, but just willing to work with you as a part of a combined team, give you this realistic number to do a Salesforce implementation and also guarantee that we'll have technical assurance over what we deliver, VRP is your place to go. So that's what I would say to anyone. And from a personal perspective, what is it like technology-wise now? What is it that most excites you? For me, I, I'm at the point now, so I've done CTA and I'm, I'm kind of debating, okay, so I need to learn something else now. What, what next? So I'm, I want to kind of toy into the AWS world and see how to build these custom applications in their own infrastructure stacks and seeing how to use something like AWS to do so. So I'm keen to now do that. And the other thing for me is when you come out of a CTA learning cycle where you're spending 14 hours per week learning about Salesforce and upskilling yourself in areas, so much has changed in the last two years around approaches to doing stuff new features of Salesforce that have come out. I really want to just have some time to upskill myself on them. So I've I've not missed out. I've actually, I know what those things are. Because what I hate doing is going to a customer, recommending something and then realizing a few months down the line that this was there. Why did I say that? Yeah. So I want to make sure that my baseline, like it was in 2018 with the CCA stuff, is now at a solid, at a solid kind of baseline based on technologies that are available today. So that's what I'm trying to get to. So what you're saying is that Salesforce need to introduce a maintenance exam for CTAs. <laughs> I don't want them to because I know that will mean another review board. And that was like, ah, it was, it was painful. But um, yeah. yeah, yeah. You are kind of right, though, at an architecture level for a system and application architects. It would be nice if there is kind of something. There, actually, it is there. I can't say it's not. So in your maintenance exams for the different domain ones, you then have to learn what's, what's new. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it'd be nice to have a practical element on that where you're kind of forced to do it. So flows, for example, today, a lot more things can be done from them. So it'd be nice to kind of Mm -hmm. build a complex one out just to make sure that you know what it can do and and you recommend it in the right regards for a customer. 
Yeah, I mean that's the crazy thing about Salesforce: the speed in which everything changes and, and new features yeah. and and you know the the capability of the platform just expands so quickly. So it is so hard for anyone to stay on top of it, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. And if anyone is listening and wants to reach out, pick your brains, whether that's regarding VRP or, or yourself and even your CTA coaching and things like that, where's the best place to find you? Yeah, I think the best place to reach me will be on LinkedIn. Contact me on LinkedIn. I can then share my personal email and we take it from there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Perfect. No, thank you very much, Ben. It's been a pleasure being part of your show. So thank you so much. So that's a wrap for this week's episode. And thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the chat. And if you did, please make sure you have subscribed for future episodes that are coming through. I would also be very grateful if you would consider leaving a review on your chosen podcast platform, as five-star reviews will help us to reach more trailblazers from across the world. I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon. And thanks again.